Hi again, um, my name is Tony, and I'm going to continue reading from uh, John Paul II's encyclical letter, The Gospel of Life, and I'm going to start reading uh, chapter 1 now. Um, but before I do that, I wanted to just um, make a couple of more general remarks. Um, first of all, on a kind of a technical note, I think in some of my citations, I've been giving these erroneous um, page numbers. Like, for example, I quoted um, an encyclical letter as the reference being page 842. Well, that's clearly wrong. Uh, <laughs> none of these uh, encyclicals have 842 pages. I think what happened is that I was trying to, trying to interpret a citation that ultimately I didn't understand. Um, so from now on, I will just um, read the part I do understand, like the title and the date and so on, and skip the cryptic uh, uh, citation parts that I don't understand. And uh, unfortunately... I don't really understand where the page are, page numbers are. It probably depends on the edition. So, and maybe they're not even citations of pages. Maybe they're little lines or verses. Although, the book I'm reading doesn't have any line numbers or verse numbers. So, uh, at the end of the day, I'm not sure <laughs> how to give better guidance on on pages. Um, the other thing I want to say is that, um, you know, this reading was something I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, I previously tried doing a YouTube uh, video. I got caught up in technical difficulties, quote-unquote, so I gave that up. And, um, you know, I... I've been wanting to read these encyclicals more for myself, finding it difficult to do it. And this has kind of inspired me to read them and also make them available in audio form so I can listen to them again and hopefully other people can listen to them. Um, I also wanted to say that, you know, just listening again this morning to the introduction that I had read um, I, uh, last night was that um, it really is beneficial to me. Um, I found that this message of the gospel of life is um, hard to hear um, because it challenges us, challenges me, and uh, challenges our whole society. And I think um, it was very uh, good to hear that. Not easy, necessarily. Um, also, on a more personal note, this was something that I, it was cute, I thought. But oh, this morning I was driving my daughters to school, and I, was, I said, hey, guys, I um, started a podcast, so they were excited to hear it. So I played a little bit of it, and... Um, they said that I had a very soothing voice. So I obviously know my voice very well, but it was nice to hear that they said that. All right, well, with that introduction, uh, let me plunge into chapter one.
chapter one is titled the voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground present day threats to human life quote cain rose up against his brother abel and killed him unquote genesis chapter 4 verse 8 the roots of violence against life seven quote god did not make death and he does not delight in the death of the of the living for he has created all things that they might exist god created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity but through the devil's envy death entered the world and those who belong to his party experience it unquote wisdom chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 and chapter 2 verses 23 and 24 the gospel of life proclaimed in the beginning when man was created in the image of god for a destiny of full and perfect life see genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and wisdom chapter 9 verses 2 and 3 is contradicted by the painful experience of death which enters the world and casts a shadow of meaninglessness or man's entire existence. Death came into the world as a result of the devil's envy. See Genesis chapter 3, verses 1, 4, and 5. And the sin of our first parents. See Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And death entered it in a violent way through the killing of Abel by his brother Cain. Quote, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. This first murder is presented with singular eloquence in the page of the book of Genesis, which has universal significance. It is a page rewritten daily with inexorable and degrading frequency in the book of human history. Let us reread together this biblical account, which despite its archaic structure and its extreme simplicity has much to teach us. Quote, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought to the firstlings, and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had not regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so? Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well. Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, so is, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to Abel, his brother, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me this day away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 16. 8. Cain was, quote, very angry, unquote, and his countenance, quote, fell, unquote, because, quote, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. The biblical text does not reveal the reason why God preferred Abel's sacrifice to Cain's. It clearly shows, however, that God, although preferring Abel's gift, does not interrupt his dialogue with Cain. He admonishes him, reminding him of his freedom in the face of evil. Man is in no way predestined to evil. Certainly, like Adam, he is tempted by the malevolent force of sin, which, like a wild beast, lies in wait at the door of his heart, ready to leap on its prey. But Cain remains free in the face of sin. He can and must overcome it. Quote, its desire is for you, but you must master it. Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Envy and anger have the upper hand over the Lord's warning. And so Cain attacks his own brother and kills him. As we read in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, quote, In the account of Abel's murder by his brother Cain, the scripture reveals the presence of anger and envy in man, consequences of original sin from the beginning of human history. Man has become the enemy of his fellow man. Unquote. Brother kills brother. Like the first fratricide, every murder is a violation of the spiritual kinship uniting mankind in one great family. The note here is St. Ambrose, the Noe, in which all share the same fundamental good equal personal dignity. Not infrequently, the kinship of, quote, flesh and blood, unquote, is also violated. For example, when threats to life arise within the relationship between parents and children, such as, as happens in abortion, or when, in the wider context of family or kinship, euthanasia is encouraged or practiced. At the root of every act of violence against one's neighbor, there is a concession to the Quote, thinking of the evil one, the one who was, quote, a murderer from the beginning. 
unquote. John chapter 8, verse 44. As the Apostle John reminds us, quote, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another and not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, unquote. First letter of John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Cain's killing of his brother at the very dawn of history is thus a sad witness of how evil spreads with amazing speed. Man's revolt against God in the earthly paradise is followed by the deadly combat of man against man. After the crime, God intervenes to avenge the one killed. Before God, who asks him about the fate of Abel, Cain, instead of showing remorse and apologizing, arrogantly eludes the question, quote, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Quote, I do not know. Unquote. Cain tries to recover, Cain tries to cover up his crime with a lie. This was and still is the case when all kinds of ideologies try to justify and disguise the most atrocious crimes against human beings. Quote, Am I my brother's keeper? Unquote. Cain cannot, does not wish to think about his brother and refuses to accept the responsibility which every person has towards others. We cannot but think of today's tendency for people to refuse to accept responsibility for their brothers and sisters. Symptoms of this trend include the lack of solidarity towards society's weakest members, such as the elderly, the infirm, immigrants, children, and the indifference frequently found in relations between the world's peoples, even when basic values such as survival, freedom, and peace are involved. 9. But God cannot leave the crime unpunished. From the ground on which it has been spilt, the blood of the one murdered demands that God should render justice. See Genesis chapter 37, verse 26, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 21, Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. From this text, the church has taken the name of the, quote, sins which cried to God for justice, unquote. And first among them, she has included willful murder. The note is Catechism of the Catholic Church. For the Jewish people, as for many peoples of antiquity, blood is a source of life. Indeed, quote, the blood is the life, unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23. And life, especially human life, belongs only to God. For this reason, whoever attacks human life in some way attacks God himself. Cain is cursed by God and also by the earth, which will deny him its fruit. See Genesis chapter 4, 11, and 12. He is punished. He will live in the wilderness and the desert. Murderous violence profoundly changes man's environment. From being the, quote, Garden of Eden, unquote, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, a place of plenty of harmonious interpersonal relationships and of friendship with God, 
the earth becomes, quote, the land of Nod, unquote, Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, a place of scarcity, loneliness, and separation from God. Cain will be, quote, a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, unquote, Genesis chapter 4, verse 14. Uncertainty and restlessness will follow him forever. And yet God, who is always merciful, even when he punishes, quote, put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him, unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 15. He thus gave him a distinctive sign, not to condemn him to the hatred of others, but to protect and defend him from those wishing to kill him, even out of a desire to avenge Abel's death. Not even a murderer <clears throat> loses his personal dignity, and God himself pledges to guarantee this. And it is precisely here that the paradoxical mystery of the merciful justice of God is shown forth. As St. Ambrose writes, quote, Once the crime is admitted at the very inception of this sinful act of parricide, then the divine law of God's mercy should be immediately extended. If punishment is forthwith inflicted on the accused, then men in the exercise of justice should in no way observe patience and moderation, but would straightaway condemn the defendant to punishment. God drove Cain out of his presence and sent him into exile far away from his native land, so that he passed from a life of human kindness to one which was more akin to the rude existence of a wild beast. God, who preferred the correction rather than the death of a sinner, did not desire that a homicide be punished by the exact exaction of another act of homicide. Unquote. The reference is the Cain at Abel. Quote, what have you done? Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The eclipse of the value of life. 10. The Lord said to Cain, quote, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. The voice of the blood shed by men continues to cry out from generation to generation in ever new and different ways. The Lord's question, quote, What have you done? Unquote, which Cain cannot escape is addressed also to the people of today to make them realize the extent and gravity of the attacks against life which continue to mark human history, to make them recover, to, sorry, to make them discover what causes these attacks and feeds them, to make them ponder seriously the consequences which derive from these attacks for the existence of individuals and peoples. Some threats come from nature itself, but they are made worse by the culpable indifference and negligence of those who could in some cases remedy them. Others are the result of situations of violence, hatred, and conflicting, and conflicting interests, which lead people to attack others through murder, war, slaughter, and genocide. And how can we fail to consider the violence against life done to millions of human beings, especially children who are forced into poverty, malnutrition, and hunger because of an unjust distribution of resources between people 
and between social classes? And what are the violence inherent not only in wars as such, but in the scandalous arms trade, which spawns the many armed conflicts which stain our world with blood? What are the spreading of death caused by reckless tampering with the world's ecological balance, by the criminal spread of drugs, or by the promotion of certain kinds of sexual activity, which, besides being morally unacceptable, also involve grave risks to life? It is impossible to catalog completely the vast array of threats to human life. So many are the forms, whether explicit or hidden, in which they appear today. 11. Here, though, we shall concentrate particular attention on another category of attacks, affecting life in its earliest and in its final stages, attacks which present new characteristics with respect to the past and which raise questions of extraordinary seriousness. It is not only that in generalized opinion these attacks tend to no longer be considered as, quote, crimes, unquote. Paradoxically, they assume the nature of, quote, rights, unquote, to the point that the state is called upon to give them legal recognition and to make them available through the free services of healthcare personnel. Such attacks strike human life at the time of its greatest frailty, when it lacks any means of self-defense. Even more serious is the fact that, most often, those attacks are carried out in the very heart of and with the complicity of the family, the family which, by its nature, is called to be the, quote, sanctuary of life, unquote. How did, this, how did such a situation come about? Many different factors have to be taken into account. In the background, there is a profound crisis of culture, which generates skepticism in relation to the very foundations of knowledge and ethics, and which makes it increasingly difficult to grasp clearly the meaning of what man is, the meaning of his rights and his duties. Then there are all kinds of existential and interpersonal difficulties, made worse by the complexity of society in which individuals, couples, and families are often left alone with their problems. There are situations of acute poverty, anxiety, or frustration in which the struggle to make ends meet, the presence of unbearable pain, or instances of violence, especially against women, make the choice to defend and promote life so demanding as sometimes to reach the point of heroism. All this explains, at least in part, how the value of life can today undergo a kind of unquote of a kind of, quote, eclipse, unquote, even though conscience does not cease to point to it as a sacred and inviolable value, as is evident in the tendency to disguise certain crimes against life in its early or final stages by using innocuous medical terms which distract attention from the fact that what, that what is involved is the right to life of an actual human person. 12. In fact, while the climate of widespread moral uncertainty can in some ways be explained by the multiplicity and gravity of today's social problems, and these can sometimes mitigate the subjective responsibility of individuals, it is no less true that we are confronted by an even larger reality, which can be described as a veritable structure of sin. 
This reality is characterized by the emergence of a culture which denies solidarity and in many cases takes the form of a veritable, quote, culture of death, unquote. This culture is actively fostered by powerful cultural, economic, and political currents which encourage the, an idea of society excessively concerned with efficiency. Looking at the situation from this point of view, it is possible to speak in a certain sense of a war the powerful against the weak, a life which would require greater acceptance, love and care is considered useless or held to be an intolerable burden and is therefore rejected in one way or another. The person who, because of illness, handicap, or more simply, just by existing, compromises the well-being or lifestyle of those who are more favored, tends to be looked upon as an enemy to be resisted or eliminated. In this way, a kind of, quote, conspiracy against life, unquote, is unleashed. This conspiracy involves not only individuals in their personal, family, or group relationships, but goes far beyond to the point of damaging and distorting at the international level relations between peoples and states. 13. In order to facilitate the spread of abortion, enormous sums of money have been invested and continue to be invested in the production of pharmaceutical products which make it possible to kill the fetus in the mother's womb without recourse to medical assistance. On this point, scientific research itself seems to be almost exclusively preoccupied with developing products which are ever more simple and effective in suppressing life and which at the same time are capable of removing abortion from any kind of control or social responsibility. It is frequently asserted that contraception, if made safe and available to all, is the most effective remedy against abortion. The Catholic Church is then accused of actually promoting abortion because she obstinately continues to teach the moral unlawfulness of contraception. When looked at carefully, this objection is clearly unfounded. It may be that many people use contraception with a view to excluding the subsequent temptation of abortion. But the negative values inherent in the, quote, contraceptive mentality, unquote, which is very different from responsible parenthood, lived in respect for the full truth of the conjugal act, are such that they, in fact, strengthen this temptation when an unwanted life is conceived. Indeed, the pro-abortion culture is especially strong precisely where the Church's teaching on contraception is rejected. Certainly, from the moral point of view of contraception, Certainly from the moral point of view, contraception and abortion are specifically different evils. The former contradicts the full truth of the sexual act as a, a proper expression of conjugal love, while the latter destroys the life of a human being. The former is opposed to the virtue of chastity in marriage. The latter is opposed to the virtue of justice and directly violates the divine commandment Quote, you shall not kill, unquote. But despite their, their differences of nature and moral gravity, contraception and abortion are often closely connected. It's fruits of the same tree. It is true that in many cases, 
contraception and even abortion are practiced under the pressure of real life difficulties which nonetheless can give which nonetheless can never exonerate from striving to observe God's law fully still in very many other instances such practices are rooted in a hedonistic mentality unwilling to accept responsibility in matters of sexuality and they imply a self-centered concept of freedom which regards procreation as an obstacle to personal fulfillment. The life which would result from a sexual encounter thus becomes an enemy to be avoided at all costs and abortion becomes the only possible decisive response to failed contraception. The close connection which exists in mentality between the practice of contraception and that of abortion is becoming increasingly obvious. It is being demonstrated in an alarming way by the development of chemical products, intrauterine devices, and vaccines, which, distributed with the same means as contraceptives, really act as abortifacients in the very early stages of the development of the life of the new human being. 14. The various techniques of artificial reproduction, which would seem to be at the service of life and which are frequently used with this intention, actually open the door to new threats against life. Apart from the fact that they are morally unacceptable, since they separate procreation from the fully human context of the conjugal act, the reference here is Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, instruction or respect for human life in its origin and on, and on the dignity of procreation, donum vitae. These techniques have a high rate of failure, not just failure in relation to fer fertilization, but with regard to the subsequent development of the embryo, which is exposed to the risk of death, generally within a very short space of time. Furthermore, the number of embryos produced is often greater than that needed for implantation in the woman's womb. And so these so-called, quote, spare embryos, unquote, are then destroyed or used for research, which, under the pretext of scientific or, med or medical progress, in fact reduces human life to the level of simple, quote, biological material, unquote, to be freely disposed of. Prenatal diagnosis, which presents no moral objections if carried out in order to identify the medical treatment which may be needed by the child in the womb, all too often becomes an opportunity for proposing or procuring an abortion. Oh, excuse me, I lost my page here. This is eugenic abortion, justified in public opinion on the basis of mentality mistakenly held to be consistent with the demands of, quote, therapeutic interventions, unquote, which accepts life only under certain conditions and rejects it when it is affected by any limitation, handicap, or illness. Following the same logic, the point has been reached where the most basic care, even nourishment, is denied to babies born with serious handicaps or illnesses. The contemporary scene, moreover, is becoming even more alarming by reason of the proposals advanced here and there to justify even infanticide, following the same arguments used to justify the right to abortion. 
In this way, we revert to a state of barbarism, which one hoped had been left behind forever. 15. Threats which are no less serious hang over the incurably ill and the dying in a social and cultural context, which makes it more difficult to face and accept suffering, the temptation becomes all the greater to resolve the problem of suffering by eliminating it at the root, by hastening death so that it occurs at the moment considered most suitable. Various considerations usually contribute to such a decision, all of which converge in the same terrible outcome. In a sick person, the sense of anguish, of severe discomfort, and even of desperation brought on by, the, by intense and prolonged suffering can be a decisive factor. Such a situation can threaten the already fragile equilibrium of an individual's personal family life, with the result that on the one hand, the sick person, despite the help of increasingly effective medical and social assistance, risks feeling overwhelmed by his or her own frailty. And on the other hand, those close to the sick person can be moved by an understandable, even if misplaced, compassion. All this is aggravated by a cultural climate which fails to perceive any meaning or value of suffering, but rather considers suffering the epitome of evil to be eliminated at all costs. This is especially the case in the absence of a religious outlook, which could help to provide a positive understanding of the mystery of suffering. On a more general level, there exists in contemporary culture a certain Promethean attitude which leads people to think that they can control life and death by taking the decisions about them into their own hands. What really happens in this case is that the individual is overcome and crushed by a death deprived of any prospect of meaning or hope. We see a tragic expression of all this in the spirit of euthanasia disguised and surreptitious, or practiced openly and even legally. As well as for reasons of a misguided pity at the sight of a patient's suffering, euthanasia is sometimes justified by the utilitarian motive of avoiding costs which bring no return and which weigh heavily on society. Thus it is proposed to eliminate malformed babies, the severely handicapped, the disabled, the elderly, especially when they are not self-sufficient and terminally ill. Nor can we remain silent in the face of other more furtive but no less serious and real forms of euthanasia. These could occur, for example, when in order to increase the availability of organs for transplants, organs are removed without respecting objective and adequate criteria which verify the death of the donor. 16. Another present-day phenomenon frequently used to justify threats and attacks against life is the demographic question. This question arises in different ways in different parts of the world. In the rich and developing in, in the rich and developed countries, there is a disturbing decline or collapse of the birth rate. The poor countries, on the other hand, generally have a high rate of population growth. Difficult to sustain in the context of low economic and social development, and especially where there is extreme underdevelopment. In the face of, a, of, in the face of overpopulation in the poorer countries, instead of forms of global intervention at the international level, 
serious family and social policies, programs of cultural development, and of fair production and distribution of resources, anti-birth policies continue to be enacted. Contraception, sterilization, and abortion are certainly part of the reason why in some cases there's a sharp decline in the birth rate. It's not difficult to be tempted to use the same methods in attacks against life also where there's a situation of, quote, demographic explosion, unquote. The Pharaoh of old, haunted by the presence and increase of the children of Israel, submitted them to every kind of oppression and ordered that every male child of the Hebrew women was to be killed. Refer to Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 through 22. Today, not a few of the powerful of the earth act in the same way. They too are haunted by the current demographic growth and fear that the most prolific and poorest people represent a threat for the well-being and peace of their own countries. Consequently, rather than wishing to face and solve these problems with respect for the dignity of individuals and families and for every person's inviolable right to life, they prefer to promote and impose by whatever means a massive program of birth control. Even the economic help, which they would be ready to give, is unjustly made conditional on the acceptance of an anti-birth policy. 17. Humanity today offers us a truly alarming spectacle. If we consider not only extensively attacks on life is spreading, but also their unheard of numerical proportion and the fact that they re- receive widespread and powerful support from a broad consensus on the part of society, from widespread legal approval and the involvement of certain sectors of healthcare personnel. As I emphatically stated at Denver on the occasion of the 8th World Youth Day, quote, with time the threats against life have not grown weaker. They are taking on vast proportions. They are not only threats coming from the outside, but from the forces of nature, or the canes who kill the abels. No, they are scientifically and systematically programmed threats. The 20th century will have been an era of massive attacks on life, an endless series of wars, and a continual taking of innocent human life. False prophets and false teachers have had the greatest success. Unquote. The reference here is addressed during the prayer vigil for the 8th World Youth Day, Denver, August 14, 1993. Aside from intentions which can be varied and perhaps seem convincing at times, especially if presented in the name of solidarity, we are in fact faced by an objective, quote, conspiracy against life, unquote, involving even international institutions engaged in encouraging and carrying out actual campaigns to make contraception, sterilization, and abortion widely available. Nor can it be denied that the mass media are often implicated in this conspiracy by lending credit to that culture which presents recourse to contraception, sterilization, abortion, and even euthanasia is a mark of progress and a victory of freedom, while depicting as enemies of freedom and progress those positions which are unreservedly pro-life. 
quote, Am I my brother's keeper? Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. A perverse idea of freedom. 18. The panorama described needs to be understood not only in terms of the phenomena of death which characterize it, but also in the variety of causes which determine it. The Lord's question, quote, what have you done? Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10 seems almost like an invitation addressed to Cain to go beyond the material dimension of his murderous gesture in order to recognize in it all the gravity of the motives which occasioned it and the consequences which result from it. Decisions that go against life sometimes arrive from difficult or even tragic situations of profound suffering, loneliness, a total lack of economic prospects, depression, and anxiety about the future. Such circumstances can mitigate even to a notable degree subjective responsibility and the consequent culpability of those who make these choices, which in themselves are evil. But today the problem goes far beyond unnecessary recognition of these personal situations. It is a problem which exists at the cultural, social, and political level, where it reveals its more sinister and disturbing aspect in the tendency, even ever more widely shared, to interpret the above crimes against life as legitimate expressions of individual freedom to be acknowledged and protected as actual rights. In this way, and with tragic consequences, a long historical process is reaching a turning point, the process which once led to discovering the idea of, quote, human rights, unquote, rights inherent in every person and prior to any constitution and state legislation, is today marked by surprising contradiction, precisely in an age when the inviolable rights of the person are solemnly proclaimed and the value of life is publicly affirmed, the very right to life is being denied or trampled upon, especially at the more significant moments of existence the moment of birth and the moment of death. On the one hand, the various declarations of human rights and the the many initiatives inspired by these declarations show that at the global level there's a growing moral sensitivity, more alert to acknowledging the value and dignity of every individual as a human being without any distinction of race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or social class. On the other hand, These noble proclamations are unfortunately contradicted by a tragic repudiation of them in practice. This denial is still more distressing, indeed more scandalous, precisely because it is occurring in a society which makes the affirmation and protection of human rights its primary objective in its boast. How can these repeated affirmations of principle be reconciled with a continual increase in a widespread justification of attacks on human life. How can we reconcile these declarations with a refusal to accept those who are weak and needy, or elderly, or those who have just been conceived? These attacks go directly against respect for life, and they increase, excuse me, and they represent a direct threat to the entire culture of human rights. It is a threat capable in the end of jeopardizing the very meaning of democratic coexistence. Rather than societies of, quote, people living together, unquote, our cities risk becoming societies of people 
were rejected, marginalized, uprooted, and oppressed. If we then look at the wider worldwide perspective, how can we fail to think that the very affirmation of the rights of individuals and peoples made it made in distinguished international assemblies is a merely futile exercise of rhetoric. If we fail to unmask the selfishness of the rich countries which exclude poor countries from access to development or make such access dependent on arbitrary prohibitions against procreation, setting up an opposition between development and man himself. Shall we not question the very economic models often adopted by states, which also as a result of international pressures and forms of conditioning cause and aggravate situations of injustice and violence in which the life of whole peoples is degraded and trampled upon? 19. What are the roots of this remarkable condition, of this remarkable contradiction? Can we find them in an overall assessment of a cultural and moral nature, beginning with a mentality which carries the concept of subjectivity to an extreme and even distorts it, and recognizes as a subject of rights only the person who enjoys full or at least incipient autonomy, and who emerges from a state of total dependence on others? But how can we reconcile this approach with the exaltation of man as a being who is, quote, not to be used, unquote. The theory of human rights is based precisely on the affirmation of the human person. Unlike animals and things, cannot be subjected to domination by others. We must also mention the mentality which tends to equate personal dignity with a capacity for verbal and explicit or at least perceptible communication. It is clear that on the basis of these presuppositions, There is no place in the world for anyone who, like the unborn and the dying, is a weak element in the social structure, and for anyone who appears completely at the mercy of others and radically dependent on them, and can only communicate through the silent language of a profound sharing of affection. In this sense, it is force which becomes a criterion for choice and action in interpersonal relationships and in social life. But this is the exact opposite of what a state ruled by law is a community in which the, quote, reasons of force are replaced by the, quote, force of reason, historically intended to affirm. At another level, the roots of the contradiction between the solemn affirmation of human rights and their tragic denial and practice lies in the notion of freedom, which exalts the isolated individual in an absolute way, and gives no place to solidarity, to openness to others in service of them. While it is true that the taking of life not yet born, or in its final stages, is sometimes marked by a mistaken sense of altruism and human compassion, it cannot be denied that such a cultural death, taken as a whole, betrays a completely individualistic concept of freedom, which ends up by becoming the freedom of the, quote, strong against the weak, who have no choice but to submit. It is precisely in this sense that Cain's answer to the Lord's question, quote, where is Abel your brother, unquote, can be interpreted, quote, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper, unquote, Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Yes, every man is, 
quote, his brother's keeper, unquote, because God entrusts us to one another. And it's also in view of this entrusting that God gives everyone freedom, a freedom which possesses an inherently relational dimension. This is a great gift of the Creator, placed as, as it is in the service of the person and of his fulfillment through the gift of self and openness to others. But when freedom is made absolute and in, in an individualistic way, it is emptied of its original content and its very meaning and dignity are contradicted. There is an even more profound aspect which needs to be emphasized. Freedom negates and destroys itself and becomes a factor leading to the destruction of others when it is no longer when it no longer recognizes and respects its essential link with the truth. When freedom out of a desire to emancipate itself from all forms of tradition and authority shuts out even the most obvious evidence of an objective and universal truth, which is the foundation of personal social life, then the person ends up by no longer taking as a sole and indisputable point of reference for his own choices the truth about good and evil, but only his subjective and changeable opinion, or indeed his selfish interest and whim. 20. This view of freedom leads to a serious distortion of life and society. If the promotion of the self is understood in terms of absolute autonomy, people inevitably reach the point of rejecting one another. Everyone else is considered an enemy from whom one has to defend oneself. Thus, society becomes a mass of individuals placed side by side, but without any mutual bonds. Each one wishes to assert himself independently of the other, and in fact intends to make his own interests prevail. Still, in the face of other people's analogous interests, some kind of compromise must be found. If one wants a society in which the maximum possible freedom is guaranteed to each individual, in this way, any reference to common values and to a truth absolutely binding on everyone is lost, and social life ventures on the shifting sands of complete relativism. At this point, everything is negotiable, everything is open to bargaining, even the first of the fundamental rights, the right to life. This is what is happening also at the level of politics and government. The original and inalienable right to life is questioned or denied on the basis of a parliamentary vote or the will of one part of the people, even if it is the majority. This is a sinister result of a relativism which reigns unopposed. The quote, right, unquote, ceases to be such because it is no longer firmly founded on the inviolable dignity of the person, but is made subject to the will of the stronger part. In this way, democracy, contradicting its own principles, effectively moves towards a form of totalitarianism. The state is no longer the, quote, common home, unquote, where all can live together on the basis of principles of fundamental equality, but it is transformed into a tyrant state, which arrogates to itself the right to dispose of the life of the weakest and most defenseless members, from the unborn child to the elder, elderly, in the name of public interest, which is really nothing but the interest of one part. The appearance of the strictest respect for legality is maintained, at least 
whether laws permitting abortion and euthanasia are the result of a ballot in accordance with what are generally seen as the rules of democracy. Really, what we have here is only the tragic caricature of reality, the democratic ideal, which is only truly such when it acknowledges and safeguards the dignity of every human person, is betrayed in its very foundations. Quote, How is it still possible to speak of the dignity of every human person when the killing of the weakest and most innocent is permitted? In the name of what, in, of what justice is the most unjust of dis- discriminations practiced? Some individuals are held to be deserving of defense and others are denied that dignity. Unquote. The reference is John Paul II addressed to the participants at the study conference on the right to life in Europe, December 18, 1987, in Segnamenti 10. When this happens, the process leading to the breakdown of a generally human coexistence and the disintegration of the state itself has already begun to claim the right to abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia, and to recognize that right in law means to attribute to human freedom a perverse and evil significance, that of an absolute power over others and against others. This is the death of true freedom. Quote, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Unquote. John chapter 8, verse 34. Quote, and from your face I shall be hidden, unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 14. The eclipse of the sons of God and of man. 21. In seeking the deepest roots of the struggle between the culture of life and the, quote, culture of death, unquote, we cannot restrict ourselves to the perverse idea of freedom mentioned above. We have to go to the heart of the tragedy being experienced by modern man, the eclipse of the sense of God and of man, typical of a social and cultural climate dominated by secularism, which, with its ubiquitous tentacles, succeeds at times in cutting Christian communities themselves, succeeds at times in putting Christian communities themselves to the test. Those who allow themselves to be influenced by this climate easily fall into a sad, vicious circle. When the sense of God is lost, there's also a tendency to lose the sense of man, of his dignity and his life. In turn, the systematic violation of the moral law, especially in the serious matter of respect for human life and its dignity, produces a kind of progressive darkening of the capacity to discern God's living and saving presence. Once again, we can gain insight from the story of Abel's murder by his brother. After the curse imposed on him by God, Cain thus addresses the Lord, quote, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me this day away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Cain is convinced that his sin will not obtain pardon from the Lord, and his inescapable destiny will be to have to, quote, hide his face, unquote, from him. 
if Cain is capable of confessing that his fault is, quote, greater than he can bear, unquote, it is because he is conscious of being in the presence of God and before God's just judgment. It is really only before the Lord that man can admit his sin and recognize his full seriousness. Such was the experience of David, who, after, quote, having committed evil in the sight of the Lord, unquote, and being rebuked by the prophet Nathan, exclaimed, quote, My offenses truly I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done, unquote. Psalms chapter 51, verses 5 and 6. 22. Consequently, when the sense of God is lost, the sense of man is also threatened and poisoned, as the Second Vatican Council concisely states, quote, Without the Creator, the creature would disappear. But when God is forgotten, the creature itself grows unintelligible. Unquote. The citation is Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. Gaudium et Spes means joy and hope. Man is no longer able to see it himself as, quote, mysteriously different, unquote, from other earthly creatures. He regards himself merely as one more living being, as an organism which at most has reached a very high state of perfection. Enclosed in the narrow horizon of his physical nature, he is somehow reduced to being, quote, a thing, unquote, and no longer grasps the, quote, transcendent, unquote, character of his, quote, existence as man, unquote. He no longer considers life as a splendid gift of God, something, quote, sacred, unquote, entrusted to his responsibility, and thus also to his loving care and, quote, veneration, unquote. Life itself becomes a mere, quote, thing, unquote, which man claims as his his exclusive property, completely subject to his control and manipulation. Thus, in relation to life at birth and at death, Man is no longer capable of posing the question of the truest meaning of his own existence, nor can he assimilate with genuine freedom these crucial moments of his own history. He is concerned only with, quote, doing, unquote, and using all kinds of technology. He busies himself with programming, controlling and dominating birth and death. Birth and death, instead of being primary experiences demanding to be, quote, lived, unquote, become things to be merely, quote, possessed, unquote, or, quote, rejected, unquote. Moreover, once all reference to God has been removed, it is not surprising that the nature, excuse me, that the meaning of everything else becomes profoundly distorted. Nature itself from being, quote, mater, unquote, mother, is now reduced to being matter, unquote, and it is subjected to every kind of manipulation. This is the direction, direction in which a certain technical and scientific way of thinking prevalent in present-day present day culture appears to be leading when it rejects the very idea that there is a truth of creation which must be ex- acknowledged or a plan of God for life which must be respected. Something similar happens when concern about the consequences of such a, quote, freedom without law, unquote, 
lead some people to the opposite position of a, quote, law without freedom, unquote. As, for example, in ideologies which considered unlawful to interfere in any way with nature, practically. I will, um, unfortunately, I, I um, wasn't watching the clock and I timed out. The app uh, times out after 60 minutes, which is a long time, and I timed out. I think in the future I'll probably break up uh, my readings into half-hour portions and and create um, more episodes. In this case, I didn't do that, so I ask for your excuses here. And um, I'm just going to continue reading where I left off. Uh, and create the second uh, episode. So I'll start. Re- I'll reread from the last paragraph and, co- and then move forward. Moreover, all reference to God being removed, it is not surprising that the meaning of everything else becomes profoundly distorted. Nature itself, from being, quote, matter, unquote, mother, is now reduced to being matter, unquote, quote, unquote. Um... I should have said mater, which is Latin for mother. And it's subjected to every kind of manipulation. This is the direction in which a certain technical and scientific way of thinking prevalent in present-day culture appears to be leading when it rejects the very idea that there is a truth of creation which must be acknowledged or a plan of God for life which must be respected. Something similar happens when concern about the consequences of such a freedom without law leads some people to the opposite position of a law without freedom, as for example in ideologies which are considered unlawful to interfere in any way with nature, practically, quote, divinizing it, unquote. Again, this is a misunderstanding of nature's dependence on the plan of the Creator. Thus it is clear that the laws of contact with God's wise design is the deepest root of modern man's confusion, both when this law leads to freedom without rules and when it leaves man in, quote, fear of his freedom. By living, quote, as if God did not exist, unquote, man does not only lose his sight of the mystery of God, but also the mystery of the world and the mystery of his own being. 23. The eclipse of the sense of God in a man inevitably leads to a practical materialism, which breeds individualism, utilitarianism, and hedonism. Here, too, we see the permanent validity of the words of the Apostle. Quote, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. Unquote. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. The values of being are replaced by those of having. The only goal which counts is the pursuit of one's material well-being. The so-called, unquote, quality of life, unquote, is interpreted primarily or exclusively as economic efficiency, in order consumerism, physical beauty, and pleasure, to the neglect of the more profound dimensions, interpersonal, spiritual, and religious of existence. In such a context, suffering, 
an inescapable burden of human existence, but also a factor of possible personal growth, is, quote, censored, unquote, rejected as useless, indeed opposed as an evil, always and in every way to be avoided. When it cannot be avoided, and the prospect of even some future well-being vanishes, then life appears to have lost all meaning, and the temptation grows in man to claim the right to suppress it. Within the same cultural climate, the body is no longer perceived as a properly personal reality, a sign and place of relations with others, with God and with the world. It is reduced to pure materiality. It is simply a complex of organs, functions, and energies to be used according to the sole criteria of pleasure and efficiency. Consequently, sexuality too is depersonalized and exploited. From being a, the sign, place, and language of love, that is, with the gift of self and acceptance of another, and all the other's richness as a person, it has increasingly become the occasion and instrument for self-assertion and the selfish satisfaction of personal desires and instincts. Thus, the original import of human sexuality is distorted and falsified. In the two meanings, unitive and procreative, inherent in the very nature of the conjugal act, are artificially separated. In this way, the marriage union is betrayed and its fruitfulness is subjected to the caprice of the couple. Procreation then becomes, quote, the enemy to be avoided in sexual activity. If it is welcomed, this is only because it expresses a desire or indeed the intention to have a child, quote, at all costs, unquote, and not because it signifies a complete acceptance of the other and therefore an openness to the richness of life which the child represents. In the materialistic perspective described so far, interpersonal relations are seriously impoverished. The first to be harmed are women, children, the sick or suffering, and the elderly. The criterion of personal dignity, which demands respect, generosity, and service, is, respect, is replaced by the criterion of efficiency, functionality, and usefulness. Others are considered not for what they quote, are, unquote, but for what they, quote, have, do, and produce, unquote. This is the supremacy of the strong over the weak. 24. It is at the heart of the moral conscience that the eclipse of the sense of God and of man, with all its various and deadly consequences for life, is taking place. It is a question, above all, of the individual conscience, as it stands before God in its singleness, and uniqueness. But it's also a question, in a certain sense, of the moral conscience of society. It is a way it, it too is responsible, not only because it tolerates or fosters behavior contrary to life, but also because it encourages the, quote, culture of death, unquote, creating and consolidating actual, quote, structures of sin, unquote, which go against life. The moral conscience, both individual and social, is today subjected also as a result of the penetrating influence of the media to an extremely serious and moral danger, that of confusion between good and evil, precisely in relation to the fundamental right to life. A large part of contemporary society looks sadly 
like that humanity which Paul described in his letter to the Romans. It is composed of, quote, of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth, unquote. Chapter 1, verse 18. Having denied God and believing that they can build the earthly city without him, quote, they become futile, they become futile in their thinking, unquote, so that, quote, their senseless minds are, were darkened, unquote. Chapter 1, verse 21. Claim, quote, claiming to be wise, they become fools, unquote. Chapter 1, verse 22. Carry not works, the serving of death, and they, quote, not only do them, but, but approve those who practice them, unquote. One, chapter 1, verse 32. When conscience is bright lamp of the soul, referred to Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, calls, quote, evil good and good evil, unquote, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it is already on the path of the most alarming corruption and darkest moral blindness. And yet all the conditioning and efforts to enforce silence fail to stifle the voice of the Lord echoing in the conscience of every individual. It is always in this intimate sanctuary of the conscience that a new journey of love, openness, and service to human life can begin. Quote, You have come to the sprinkled blood, unquote. Refer to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 24. Signs of hope and invitation to commitment. 25. Quote, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Unquote. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. It's not only the voice of the blood of Abel, the first innocent man to be murdered, which cries to God, the source and defender of life. The blood of every other human being who has been killed since Abel is also a voice raised to the Lord. In an absolute singular way, as the author of the letters to the Hebrews remind us, the voice of the blood of Christ, of whom Abel in his innocence is a prophetic figure, cries out to God, quote, You have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel, unquote. Chapter 12, verse 22 and 24. It is the sprinkled blood a single a symbol and prophetic sign of it had been the blood of the sacrifices of the old covenant whereby god expressed his will to communicate his own life to men purifying and consecrating them see Ex exodus chapter 24 verse 8 and leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 now all this is fulfilled and comes true in Christ. His is the sprinkled blood which redeems, purifies, and saves. Here's the blood of the mediator of the new covenant, quote, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, unquote. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. This blood which flows from the pierced side of Christ on the cross. See John chapter 19, verse 34. Quote, speaks more graciously, unquote, than the blood of Abel. Indeed, it expresses and requires a more radical, quote, justice, unquote, and above all, it implores mercy.
the reference here is St. Gregory the Great, Moralia, and Job. It makes intercession for the brethren before the Father. See Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And it is the source of perfect redemption and the gift of new life. The blood of Christ, while it reveals the grandeur of the Father's love, shows how precious man is in God's eyes and how priceless the value of his life. The Apostle Peter reminds us of this. You know that you are, quote, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, unquote. First Peter Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Precisely by contemplating the precious blood of Christ, the signs of his self-giving love, referred to John chapter 13, verse 1, the believer learns to recognize and appreciate the almost divine dignity of every human being and can exclaim with ever renewed and grateful wonder, quote, how precious must man be in the eyes of the Creator if he gains so great a Redeemer exalted of the Easter Vigil. And if God gave his only Son in order that man should not perish but have eternal life. Refer to John chapter 3 verse 16 and John Paul II encyclical letter Redemptor Hominis March 4, 1979. Redemptor Hominis meaning Redeemer of man. Furthermore, Christ's blood reveals to man that his greatness and therefore his vocation consists in the sincere gift of self. Precisely because it is poured out as a gift of life, the blood of Christ is no longer a sign of death or definitive separation from the brethren, but the instrument of a communion which is richness of life for all. Whoever in the sacrament of the Eucharist drinks this blood and abides in Jesus, refer to John chapter 6 verse 56, he is drawn into the dynamism of his love and gift of life in order to bring to its fulfillness, in order to bring to its fullness the original vocation to love which belongs to everyone. Refer to Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. It is from the blood of Christ that all draw the strength to commit themselves to promoting life. It is precisely this blood that is the most powerful source of hope. Indeed, it is the foundation of the absolute, absolute certitude that in God's plan of life will be victorious. That in God's plan, life will be victorious. Quote, and death shall be no more, unquote, exclaims the powerful voice that, which comes from the throne of God in the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelations chapter 21, verse 4. And St. Paul assures us the present victory over sin is a sign and anticipation for the definitive victory over death when there, quote, shall come to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Unquote. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, 
verses 54 and 55. 26. In effect, signs which point to this victory are not lacking in our societies and cultures, strongly marked though they are by the, quote, culture of death, unquote. It would therefore be to give a one-sided picture, which could lead to sterile discouragement if the condemnation of the threats to life were not accompanied by the presentation of the positive signs at work in humanity's present situation. Unfortunately, it's often hard to see and recognize these positive signs, perhaps also because they do not receive sufficient attention in the communications media. Yet, how many initiatives of help and support for people who are weak and defenseless have sprung up and continue to spring up in the Christian community and in civil society at the local, national, and international level through the efforts of individuals, groups, movements, and organizations of various kinds. There's still many married couples who, with a generous sense of responsibility, are ready to accept children as, quote, the supreme gift of marriage, unquote. The reference here is to Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, Pastoral Constitution, the Church in the, Maori, in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. Nor is there a lack of families which, over and above their everyday service of life, are willing to accept abandoned children, boys and girls, and teenagers in difficulty, handicapped persons, elderly men and women who have been left alone. Many centers in support of life or similar institutions are sponsored by individuals and groups which, with admirable dedication and sacrifice, offer moral and material support to mothers who are in, in difficulty and are tempted to have recourse to abortion. Increasingly, there are appearing in many places groups of volunteers prepared to offer hospitality to persons without a family who find themselves in conditions of particular distress or who need a supportive environment to help them to overcome destructive habits and discover anew the meaning of life. Medical science, thanks to the committed efforts of researchers and practitioners, continues in its efforts to discover ever more effective remedies, treatments which were once inconceivable but which now offer much promise for the future are today being developed for the unborn, the suffering, and those in acute and terminal stages of sickness. Various agencies and organizations are mobilizing their efforts to bring the benefit of the most advanced medicine to countries most afflicted by poverty and endemic diseases. In a similar way, national and international associations of physicians are being organized to bring quick relief to peoples affected by natural disasters, epidemics, or wars. Even if a just international distribution of medical resources is still far from being a reality, how can we not recognize in the steps taken so far the sign of a growing solidarity among peoples, a praiseworthy human and moral sensitivity, and a greater respect for life. 27. In view of laws which permit abortion and in view of efforts which here and there have been successful to legalize euthanasia, movements and initiatives to raise social awareness in defense of life have sprung up in many parts of the world, where, in accordance to their principles, such movements act resolutely, but without resorting to violence, they promote a wider and more profound consciousness 
for the value of life and evoke and bring about a more determined commitment to its defense. For the, furthermore, how can we fail to mention all those daily gestures of openness, sacrifice, and unselfish care which countless people lovely, lovingly make in families, hospitals, orphanages, homes for the elderly, and other centers or communities which defend life, allowing herself to be guided by the principle of Jesus, the, quote, Good Samaritan, unquote, refer to Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37, and upheld by his strength, the church has always been in the front line of providing charitable help. So many of her sons and daughters, especially men and women religious in traditional and never new forms, have consecrated and continue to consecrate their lives to God, freely giving of themselves out of love for their neighbor, especially for the weak and needy. These deeds strengthen the basis of the, quote, civilization of love and life, unquote which without the life of individuals and of society itself loses its most genuinely human quality. Even if they go unnoticed and remain hidden to most people, faith assures us that the Father, quote, who sees in secret, unquote, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, not only will reward these actions, but already here and now makes them produce lasting fruit for the good of all. Among the signs of hope, we should also count the spread in many levels of public opinion of a new sensitivity ever more opposed to war as an instrument for the resolution of conflicts between peoples and increasingly oriented to finding effective but, quote, nonviolent, quote, unquote, means to counter the armed aggressor. In the same perspective, there is evidence of a growing public opposition to the death penalty even when such a penalty is seen as a kind of, quote, legitimate defense, unquote, on the part of society. Modern society, in fact, has a means of effectively suppressing crime by rendering criminals harmless without definitively denying them the chance to reform. Another welcoming sign is a growing attention being paid to the quality of life and to ecology especially in more developed societies where people's expectations are no longer concentrated so much on problems of survival as on a search for an overall improvement of living conditions. Especially significant is the reawakening of an ethical reflection on issues affecting life. The emergence and ever more widespread development of bioethics is promoting more reflection and dialogue between believers and non-believers as well as between followers of different religions on ethical problems, including fundamental issues pertaining to human life. 28. This situation with its lights and shadows ought to make us all fully aware that we are facing an enormous and dramatic clash between good and evil, death and life, the, quote, culture of death, unquote, and the, quote, culture of life, unquote. We find ourselves not only quote, face with, unquote, but necessarily, quote, in the midst of, unquote, this conflict. We are all involved and we all share in it with the inescapable responsibility of choosing to be unconditionally pro-life. For us, too, Moses' invitation rings out loud and clear. Quote, see, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. 
Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Unquote. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 and 19. This invitation is very appropriate for us who are called day by day to the duty of choosing between the quote, culture of life unquote, and the culture of death. But the call of Deuteronomy goes even deeper, for it urges us to make a choice which is properly religious and moral. It's a question of giving our own existence a basic orientation and giving the law of the Lord faithfully and consistently. Quote, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and cleaving to him. For that means life to you in length of days. Unquote. Chapter 30, verse 16, 19, and 20. The unconditional choice for life reaches its full religious and moral meaning when it flows from, is informed by, and nourished by faith in Christ. Nothing helps us so much to face positively the conflict between death and life in which we are engaged is faith in the Son of God who became man and dwelt among men so that, quote, they may have life and have it abundantly, unquote. John chapter 10, verse 10. It's a matter of faith in the risen Lord who has cons conquered death, faith in the blood of Christ, quote, that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel, unquote. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Within the light and strength of this faith, therefore, in facing the challenges of the present situation, the church is becoming more aware of the grace and responsibility which come to her from the Lord of proclaiming, celebrating, and serving the gospel of life.